Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe tested positive for COVID or Omicron and is self-isolating at home. We've heard that uh, news earlier in the week, the Premier said. We do not get through Omicron with lockdowns. We've played that clip for you. And the Premier added, there are many other things we can do and should do to protect ourselves and those around us. Premier, how are you? I'm doing well, Roy. I'm uh, spending a few days at home here. Um, you know, very little to, to virtually no symptoms. And I, I think I can attribute that to uh, I was fortunate enough to, to have both of my vaccines, so I'm fully vaccinated, plus I had the, the booster over a couple of weeks ago, so I'm uh, feeling pretty good, thanks. Well, I'm glad to hear that. When when I found out that you tested positive, I had to go and have a test on as well. I thought, well, I better check it out, and, and I watched that little line develop, and fortunately for me, it was negative. So, yeah, it's it's important that we do this and that we test, and, and this brings us to what I want to talk to you about out of the gate. You have said that lockdowns are not the answer. And uh, the Saskatchewan has not forced lockdowns and other restrictions on, on people in your province. So talk to us, please, about what, what you're thinking there is. Why not? And you've stated that, um, and you posted to social media that there are other ways to combat Omicron. Let's talk about that. Well, first of all, uh, with respect to Omicron, which is a very different variant than what we were dealing with here a few months ago in Saskatchewan in the in the Delta variant, and what a, a few other provinces had some significant uh, underlying Delta numbers as it went into their Omicron uh, wave. Um, Omicron is different. Uh, it's different in the case numbers. Um, it's different in, in obviously its transmissibility, um, but it's also different in the rate of hospitalization that it. Uh, uh, that that results from uh, being infected uh, with with Omicron, and so you know what we're seeing in in other areas around the world, and and, and even now in Canada, is that when you imp- when you approach Omicron in the same way that we may have approached Delta or the UK variant or the original uh, COVID strain, uh, it seems to spread anyway. Um, and we're seeing uh, you know large numbers uh, outstripping the testing capacity that we have uh, across this nation, uh, regardless of where. Uh, you are with uh, your public health public health recommendations, and, and actually some of the provinces now we're seeing uh, with some of the most stringent um, measures in place actually um, in turn have have some of the higher hospitalization rates uh, as well. So there's there's other tools that we have. Uh, we've learned over the course of the last two years. I, I think we've all learned over the course of the last two years, um, and we need to adapt as uh, as this virus adapts. Well, we need to continue to, you know, encourage vaccination. Um, we have rapid tests available in this nation at an increasing level. We're fortunate in Saskatchewan where we have uh, broad access to, to rapid tests, and that's how I identified, uh, um, you know, my positive uh, uh, prognosis. And we should use those. Um, we should use those on a regular basis uh, to you know, identifying to self-isolate as, as soon as possible. Yeah, um, I, I knew who was going to criticize you before I even looked for the stories. I knew who was going to write about you in a critical way. It seemed to me that what you were doing made uh, certainly made sense to me. Uh, look, you've had major increases in Omicron cases in Saskatchewan, but that's happened elsewhere as well in many other provinces. So, and you just you just mentioned that some of the provinces where, or some parts in Canada, of provinces where they have more stringent measures like lockdowns uh, and and in Quebec a curfew, but the numbers, uh, the infection numbers, uh, are are not all that different. In fact, they are per capita 
as far as I can tell, some of the hospitalization numbers from other provinces are greater than they are in Saskatchewan. Yeah, they, they most certainly are, and increasing at a at a, at a greater rate. And and listen, the the numbers are. The, the numbers have really outstripped uh, the capacity uh, across Canada and, and likely in many cases across North America. But we are fortunate to have uh, these at-home rapid testing kits. But the hospitalizations is is what ultimately matters. And, and Omicron is a very, very different variant uh, than the Delta variant. The Delta variant had uh, you know, was very challenging uh, in the way of not only hospitalizations, but more particularly in, in the ICU uh, levels that we saw in Saskatchewan and that uh, other provinces have seen as well. But, you, you know, here, here we are in Saskatchewan today, and our, our ICUs, if we, if we go back compared to December 21st, which was uh, the date that a, a number of provinces really imposed uh, some heavier restrictions, and you compare Saskatchewan to, to other jurisdictions, our, our hospitalizations are up some in Saskatchewan, about 65%. Um, that's all COVID hospitalizations, not just the ones due to COVID. Um, so we're up about 65%. But when you look at, at some other provinces, like uh, you know Ontario, for instance, they're they're up about 750%. And um, Quebec uh, up close to 700% in their in their hospitalizations. And so, you know, it's it's very challenging what is happening in those uh, jurisdictions. And you pile on top of that, of course, uh, people in our healthcare system that are self-isolating and not able to, to, to offer uh, the services that we need, it becomes even, even more challenging. But uh, I think it shows that, in you know, in, in very vivid form that, Omicron is a very, very different variant, and it needs to be approached uh, very differently than than the original Delta or the Delta uh, variant that we uh, have been dealing with over the course of the last number of months. Premier Mo, is there a tension among premiers on dealing with Omicron from a public health perspective? Is there tension, perhaps, with the with the Prime Minister, who seems to feel through his uh, federal health minister that it's going to be necessary for provinces that would include you to to uh, exercise mandates. Yeah, and no. Uh, well, when the, when the federal health minister says something like that, I would say that that likely creates uh, some tension for some provinces. Saskatchewan won't be uh, putting in place, uh, you know, an absolute vaccine mandate or a vax tax uh, for, for that measure. I don't even know legally if, if uh, you know, a province would be able to do that. I'm fairly certain, and we've been checking that the federal government wouldn't be able uh, to do that, nor uh, do they have any place uh, really in uh, outside of supporting uh, the provincially run healthcare systems uh, that we have uh, in in this nation, and 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 they need to increase their support through the Canada Health Transfer, and that's been broadly uh, discussed and asked for by by all thirteen premiers. But I I would say no, there isn't tension, uh, most certainly among the premiers. Um, we've been speaking virtually weekly for over two years now. Uh, you know, sharing what's working, uh, sharing what is uh, challenging, and and sharing our our specific uh, situations, and uh, you know, trying to navigate this as best we can in our respective jurisdictions. What, what's what's ha- we also have to understand what's happening in Canada today is um, the same today, but over the course of the last month or so, and and, and what is resulting in in some of the hospitalization rates we see is is a, a mix of uh, two strains. Uh, you know, Quebec, Ontario, Manitoba. Um, had significant Delta numbers going into uh, their Omicron wave. Uh, Saskatchewan uh, and, and Alberta, I think, were came. We had our Delta wave a little earlier. Uh, we had our numbers uh, down uh, quite low when the Omicron wave hit, and we're predominantly. Uh, virtually all Omicron cases here in Saskatchewan now. And so, you know, our approach could be a little different uh, than other provinces due to that. But I think as we move forward, 
uh, all provinces are, are virtually all Omicron uh, strains as well. And and I think uh, we need to treat uh, the Omicron strain in, in a very different way than we did uh, the Delta strain. And we need to work to keep uh, keep our, our communities open, keep our, you know, the consequences of lockdowns and staying out of school to, to keep our, our, our children, our youth in a position where, you know, things are as can be as normal as possible. Yeah, you you had the kids go back to school on schedule. Uh, most of the other provinces a week later, Ontario is sending the kids to school tomorrow where the snowstorm isn't going to stop things. May I ask you just something else? One other question. We've talked a lot in the last 24 hours, and we will still continue today to have ex- opinions and, and thoughts on this cross-border trucker vaccine mandate and it uh, kicking in the middle of January. What are your thoughts on that? Well, what a schmuggle uh, to begin with. You, you know, the federal government had taken a position that they were going to be, that this vaccination mandate would be in place, um, which is a tremendous challenge to the trucking industry that I would put forward uh, has been, uh, you know, a staple in providing our, our goods throughout the last two years. Um, you know, even in some of the most challenging times and some through some of the most severe lockdowns, our, our truckers continued to cross that border and do so safely, even previous to vaccines uh, being being available. And so I, Saskatchewan disagreed with the original position, which was uh, then the uh, day before it was to be implemented was rescinded. And then uh, a few hours later in that day, they rescinded the rescinding of uh, what was a, a wrong decision to begin with to return to uh, the the what we thought was a, a mistaken uh, policy direction. Um, you know, listen, as I said, our... Our, our transport drivers, our, our truckers, uh, and I've spoken to many of them from Saskatchewan, they have uh, conducted themselves safely. They've been there when we need them. And I, I would say we most certainly need them in the weeks and months ahead as we see you know, interruptions in supply chain uh, due to people that will be self-isolating due to floods uh, in, in British Columbia and on our West Coast. Uh, we need our truckers now more than ever. And so Saskatchewan has uh, disagreed with this position from uh, when it was first introduced. But what a what a small in in the last day of implementation. So it's it's disappointing, and it isn't going to help. Uh, you know the, the broader challenge that we're going to have coming out of Omicron, which is supply chain uh, access and and inflationary pressures. The cost of food for Canadians is lurching constantly upward. And uh, our guest will tell us, I'm sure, that Canada's cross-border trucker vaccine mandate is causing concern about reliable delivery of, get this, $21 billion in annual agri-food products from the United States. The U.S. cross-border trucker vaccine mandate uh, from the United States perspective is scheduled for next Saturday. Ours went into effect uh, yesterday, and you heard truckers on this program we're joined by Professor Sylvain Charlebois, Director of the Agri-Foods Analytics Laboratory and Professor at Dalhousie University. Professor Charlebois, how are you? Good, Roy. How are you? I, I'm fine. I should have asked, where are you? <laughs> I'm actually in Tampa <laughs> Bay, Florida. I'm actually a visiting scholar at the University of South Florida for, uh, for the next uh, few weeks, working on, guess what? Supply chain efficiencies. <laughs> That's why. As you know, Roy, this time of year, Canada buys a lot of food from Florida. And so uh, so we do need that uh, that border to make sure that Canadians actually have access to, to some great products from, uh, from down south. Yeah. You're also in a grocery store, right? Uh, I, I was at a few grocery stores uh, over the week, and uh, shelves are full. Uh, and frankly, some of the retailers here do a really good job offering some great products. I, 
I'm always impressed when I travel to see the variety and the quality of some of the products that uh, that people have access to, including in Canada. I mean, Canada is always outstanding, but I've 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 received a lot of reports from different people across the country. They're starting to see, unfortunately, empty shelves. Yeah, and that's across the nation. Yeah, we've we've heard that as well. Now, so so Canada imports, and these are your numbers, I believe, twenty one billion dollars annually in agri-food products that, that's from U.S. dollars, by the way. Well, U.S. dollars, US. okay, yeah. yeah. So that's agri-food products from the United States. So how much, if we can just start with this, how much stress because of the cross-border trucker mandate? Is that um, is that delivery system under and in a in a just in a in a uh, surveillance manner? Can you give us an idea of how it's going to impact on Canada and Canadians? I have more specific questions for you, but just in an overview. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'll tell you what we know. Uh, so we do import for well over twenty one billion dollars U.S. Uh, worth of food every year. Seventy percent of that actually will go through the border on wheels with a driver. We do know that anywhere between eight to 16,000 Canadian truck drivers uh, will be impacted by the vaccine mandate because uh, they're not vaccinated. And uh, we do know that 125,000 American truck drivers will be impacted also by the vaccine mandate uh, and so this is, of course, on both sides. Uh, Canada happened yesterday on January 15th. Uh, the American vaccine mandate will start uh, on January 2nd. Now we're still wondering whether or not it, it, will, it will actually be enforced because there's some challenges, core challenges there. But uh, we do believe that they will actually, uh, they will proceed with the vaccine mandate. This is what we know. Now, as far as access goes, it's hard to believe that uh, that that there won't be any disturbance. And, of course, on top of that, you need oversight. You need to ask more questions to drivers. You have to make sure that drivers are in compliance. And, and that tends to cost more money. It tends to actually take more time at the border. And time is not a good friend to food distribution because you could end up wasting more food as they wait uh, on trucks and things like that. So, Absolutely. Those are, those are certainly things that are concerning for many, many people. Yeah, so 60 to 70 percent, you say, of food imported into Canada from the United States arrives by truck. 60 to 70 percent. So if we have, and the number is anywhere from, I think, from 10 to 16,000 dollars, or 10 to 16,000 Canadian truckers will not be crossing the border uh, any longer because they're unvaccinated. Americans can't enter the Canada already if they're unvaccinated, American drivers, as of yesterday. So there's no way with those numbers in place that we cannot, that, that we're not going to be affected, that our shelves will not be affected. It's, those numbers simply say there's going to be less available. The other thing, Roy, that we need to keep in mind is that we are uh, in the middle of January, yeah. uh, a period yeah. uh, when we actually import a lot more food from the U.S. because our agriculture is on break right now. So we're not producing as much, so we are highly reliant on, on, on the Americans. Uh, a lot of people have said, well, this is all about reciprocity because the Americans are going to be doing the same thing. Well, actually, yes, but stakes are much higher on our side because of the fact that we're in the middle of the winter and because truckers don't have as many options. Here in the U.S., I mean, I'm in Florida. I can tell you, you talk to trucking companies, they have options. They can go to Mexico. They can go to other places. They can find new routes. In Canada, we're way more dependent. 
And the other thing, of course, that we need to keep in mind for our food industry in Canada is Omicron. Omicron has disabled our food industry. Uh, has, as you see in grocery stores, lots of empty shelves. That's due to the fact that Omicron has slowed things way, way down. It's much tougher to operate. So adding, so basically uh, implementing this first measure at the border, the first measure since the start of the pandemic, is really playing with fire. Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts here, and included as well is migrant farm workers are going to have difficulty, or already having difficulty, getting into Canada or planning to come into Canada. That's another factor, is it not? Another policy-induced problem, I guess, is this this situation you just mentioned. Uh, So until February 1st, there is a ban uh, on foreign... uh, uh, foreign workers working on farms. A lot of, I believe, there are over 200 farmers uh, who cannot get foreign workers uh, in because of a ban, a temporary ban, until February 1st. That's going to be, uh, of course, a problem, uh, especially in southern Ontario, where where uh, some of the production is highly intensive this time of year in preparation for. Uh, for say cucumber production, tomato production. I mean, a lot of a lot of things have to happen uh, beforehand. Some of these operations are very, very labor intensive. You need people, and if you don't have the people, enough people, uh, you'll you'll start the harvesting season uh, or the season, the growing season, very late in the game. Yeah. And that's going to be a huge problem later. This is one of the things that we should go back to, I guess, Professor Charlebois. Before we talk about anything else, like the mandate, like the uh, supply chain, food was going to go up anyway. That's right. So in December, uh, you may recall, Roy, that we uh, released uh, Canada's food price report with uh, the University of Guelph, University of Saskatchewan, and uh, University of British Columbia. And we were expecting food prices to go uh, to uh, rise uh, by as much as 7% for 2022. So about a 1000 bucks more for the entire year for, for an average family of four. Uh, we were expecting uh, some variants to uh, disrupt the food supply chain, of course, and, and this is a global phenomenon. This is not just a Canadian phenomenon. So we're, we, we are expecting the entire global food supply chain to be messy, to remain messy for a while. Uh, the problem, of course, it's always hard to predict how governments will react to risks <laughs> or how governments will choose how to manage risks uh, related to uh, the pandemic. And so this is one example, uh, a policy that could actually uh, impact our food access, which is very much part of our nation's food security agenda. Well, let's talk about that. Now, would you tell us, please, what food security is? How do we define food security? If we know that shelves are going to have less food on them, if we know that prices are going up, what is food security? Yeah, so uh, so it's defined in many different ways, but this is the way I define it. Uh, very simply, there are three axes to food security. Safety, access, and affordability. So safety... Uh, I would say that right now, nothing has been compromised. In fact, Canada is probably one of the leading nations in the world when it comes to uh, providing safe food to its citizens. Uh, Canada's always ranked uh, uh, as a top-tier country, so I'm not too concerned about that. Although, because of supply chain woes, uh, things have slowed down. You, people may have noticed that uh, products aren't as fresh as they used to. So uh, instead of 
hoarding food right now, you may want to do the opposite. Buy for the next two, three days. You won't waste as much. So that's one thing. Second, access. Food access is part of food security. And this uh, border control will likely impact access. And if you impact, if you uh, tweak access or if access is affected, it will affect the third layer of food security, which is affordability. <laughs> uh, we all know what's going on with food prices in the last few years, uh, and we want to make sure that food remains affordable to Canadians. Uh, right now, food affordability again is not. We're not doing well. In fact, in 2020, we were 18th in the world. We're down to 24th, and because of what's happening right now, my guess is that Canada could actually drop in real rankings when it, comes, when it comes to food affordability. So, in a nutshell, that's what food security is. Okay, so now so we're compromising our access to readily available food, affordable food, by government policies. I mean, the, the government policies are going to compromise our access to food and price. We know that. Uh, but let me just come back to the issue of vaccine mandates. I just have this thought. So we have the one of the border now. For Canadian drivers returning from the United States, we all, it also affects American drivers who would come into Canada who aren't vaccinated. But we've seen where vaccine mandates, the government's laid down, like the province of Quebec, was had a vaccine mandate cast in stone for healthcare workers, and then they did away with it. Yeah, I uh, healthcare of all sectors. Of all sectors. Roy, to be honest, I, I can't really comment on vaccines because it's not really my area of expertise. But what I can tell you from a food access, food distribution perspective, given the fact that we're in the middle of January, given the fact, given how Omicron has impacted the entire food economy, uh, and, and because food inflation is already a problem in Canada, uh, I would say that right now the vaccine mandate at border is ill-timed. That's that that would be the re- my reading of the situation, and it would be prudent for Ottawa to wait a few months until we're over that Omicron wrath and and of course over that that winter season uh, when when our food system is way more vulnerable. Yeah, timing timing is everything, is it not? I mean, we, we, it's a cliche, but it but it's true. Something that you and I talked about off the air, and and you mentioned to me that while the United States imports, and this is important, the United States imports raw ingredients from Canada. Canada, in turn, imports fully produced foods from the United States. So that's another factor in all of this. That's right. So the one thing that uh, perhaps your listeners may want to keep in mind is that uh, most of the larger companies will will probably be fine with the mandate because they probably operate their own fleets and they make sure that their truckers are vaccinated already. Uh, we have to think about the smaller and medium-sized businesses, family-owned businesses out there, processors uh, that do buy products uh uh, ingredients uh, from the U.S. or from Canada, vice versa, and also independent grocers on both sides of the borders that will be impacted by by the vaccine mandate, uh, just because they don't operate their own fleets and they're they're really not huge customers for transportation companies. And and if you're if you're a transportation company and you have to you're forced to pick to 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 pick your your most favorite customers, you're going to pick your A customers, not your Bs and Cs. Yeah. That's really what business is all about across the supply chain. So I suspect, but 
the, at the end of the day, if you actually take away food from a market, obviously everyone is going to be impacted and prices are going to go up regardless which company is impacted by the vaccine mandate. Okay, we have about 30 seconds, Professor Charlebois. If there are, I don't want to use the word deals, but if there's reasonable price, if, if certain foods, certain supplies are going to be reasonably priced, where will we find those? Uh, with the vaccine mandate, you mean? Um, well, just at the grocery store. I, I, where, where, what shelf do we go to to get reasonably priced food? <laughs> well, I mean, deals right now, like rice, is actually much cheaper than it used to. Uh, vegetables are still reasonably priced, but again, of course, with the vaccine mandate, that may change. I would say if you, uh, if you're very, if you're a careful shopper in the periphery of the store, the fresh stuff, uh, if you go to more than one store, you should be fine okay. with strategy. Okay. At the center of the store, things may get tricky. Stephen Laskowski is the president of the Canadian Trucking Alliance and the Ontario Trucking Association. He joins us on the Roy Green Show. Stephen, how are you? I'm good, Roy. Thanks for having me on the show this afternoon. Yeah, it's good to have you with us. A confusing time. Wednesday, it's off. Thursday, it's on. And yesterday, we had two Canadian truckers who had left on Wednesday after it had been said to be off the mandate, now find themselves, when we talk to one of them who's in the United States, saying, well, I expected to come back with a full load, but I can't now because I'm not vaccinated. How confusing is this to the industry? So it was uh, a period of confusion. Um, but today, we know what we're dealing with. And uh, right now, Roy, we're trying to focus in on... Uh, what we can do to continue to move the supply chain. So talk to us about that. What can sure. be done? What are you working on? So I, I think, you know, what can you do to mitigate the loss of 10 to 15% of your drivers? Uh, what some companies uh, are trying to do, if possible, some may be engaged in both international and domestic uh, routes. So what they are trying to do and have been trying to do is switch around their uh they had people that were vaccinated that were like to do only domestic routes, try to convince them to do international routes. Typically, truck drivers crossing the border um, isn't an easy task. It's, it's a, it can be a challenge at times. And so some drivers prefer just to stay in Canada. So some of those companies that, as I said, who have options are trying to work with their drivers to see if they're willing to uh, come, come into the north-south route and those drivers who are unvaccinated uh, to see if they can find them some work uh, in Canada only. But, Roy, the, the important point here is that that may be a very short-term mitigation strategy because the government of Canada has also announced its intent uh, to uh, regulate a vaccine mandate on federally regulated companies, including the trucking industry. So this is like a double whammy. It could be, yes. Plus, as I understand it, in December, so a month ago, the uh, CTA announced some 23,000 job vacancies already existed for transport truck drivers. And that was a 20% surge in driver vacancies over the second quarter of 2021. So that's a, a climbing number at 23,000. That, that has well, to be hugely well, significant. We can, we can even update that because StatsCan and Trucking HR Canada, who conduct, the, conduct this research, just were actually released the third quarter numbers um, of, of, of 2021 last week, and we're up to 25,000. So, oh, wow. uh, you know, it's, it's going in the wrong direction. And obviously, in a time where we need more truckers, we're getting less. 
and and you know the supply chain, as we all know, has has its challenges right now. Yeah, the timing isn't uh, good either, is it, Stephen? Middle of January. Well, you know, Roy, I think that's what our message has been to Ottawa. I think you need to separate the two. Uh, you know, entry exit requirements around the world have trade changed dramatically. You know, there's only a handful of countries now that you can enter as a foreign citizen uh, where you you have to show proof of, of COVID vaccination. So that was, I think you hit the, the key word, it was always timing. It was never a question of if, it was a question of when. And that's what we wanted the government of Canada and the United States to do, to work primarily with our customers as to when we can get a smoother transition to this mandate. So how much stress and strain, I'll ask, here's part A and part B. Part A, yeah. how much stress and strain is the trucking industry itself under right now? Because uh, Ron Foxcroft and uh, David Carruth, two truck firm owners, you know them, were on yes. this program and told us that, and this is now in December, they told us that between 5 and 30% of trucks are sitting idle, not because they don't want them out on the road, but because they don't have the drivers. Yep. So, so how much stress and strain is the industry under? And then how much stress and strain is the actual supply chain under and most significant to us, I think, just today, because we started with talking about the supply chain and food availability in, in Canada. How much stress is the supply chain under, actually? So you had a good doctor on. I, I heard your uh, pre- announcement leading into me, and I've been on shows with him as well. And I think, you know, I, what we've done is CTA is allowed the various sectors of the economy. Almost everything you see in your house or in, in Canada moves by truck. So I think what the best thing to do is to let all those sectors explain their own story, mm-hmm. because it will vary on impact. Right? Some some sectors of the supply chain have been very aggressive in securing truck transportation, and some haven't or can't. And there's all various reasons for that. With regards to the to the stress question, you know, uh, as uh, you talk to David Cruz and Ron Foxcroft and other trucking company owners will tell you, the stress is everywhere in our in our industry. It's with the dispatchers. It's with it's with the individuals doing the loads as everything shifts. There's a great stress on our industry beyond the drivers at a personal level. Yeah. So now, next Saturday, we're expecting, although I don't think this is yet cast in granite, but we're expecting, you can tell me if it is, that uh, Joe Biden's mandate is going to take effect, which will uh, affect us even, I guess, more, because 28,000, I I understand, 28,000 U.S. truckers operate cross-border, and the American Trucking Association estimates a strict U.S. vaccine mandate would remove maybe 50% of those drivers. Yeah, yeah, I think, Roy, that's probably a reflection. Our 10 to 15% exit rate is a reflection on our membership surveys plus Canadian society rates. Trucking industry has no increase in Canada, has no increased vaccination hesitancy than a normal Canadian. So that's why our numbers are where they're at. And I think the, the American Trucking Association numbers are a reflection of their surveys, but also a reflection of their country's attitudes towards vaccines, which is a bit different than, than, than Canadian society. So, Stephen, what's the takeaway today? 24 hours or you know, less than two days after the vaccine mandate went into effect in Canada, what's, what's the takeaway today? So I guess the takeaway today is that uh, we're going to have less trucks traveling uh, the U.S.-Canada border. 70% of that trade moves by truck. 
total trade is $460 billion. It's going to have an impact. I'll give you some, uh, I'm always hesitant to just give one-off examples, but I think it gives you somewhat of an indication of what all this means. Uh, one large carrier uh, that we have in Canada, 90% vaccination rate. They've told their customers that they won't be able to move 2,000 loads across the Canada-U.S. border in the month of January. We have another member, and January tends to be um, an off month in the supply chain, in all supply chains. It's just a bit of a down uh, after Christmas. You, you hear up from all the economic experts. But we have one member, and it's reflective of a bunch of members, who's 25% overbooked. What that means is just like if you were sitting in an airport, when you start hearing the, the airline calling you and saying, can we have volunteers? That's what's going to happen in the supply chain because they've lost drivers and the supply chain is so fragile that there is increased demand in January. What you would expect to see over the coming months as the economy heats up, the two examples that I just gave you, to grow and to grow and to grow. In the U.S. last week, uh, on one day, there were a million positive Omicron tests reported. Meanwhile, masks are hardly seen at major sporting events like this weekend's NFL playoff games. And Americans in many states are going about their lives and dealing with COVID and Omicron when and as it may arrive. At least that how, that's how it appears. So let's talk to Dr. Peter Hotez about that, Dean of the National School of Medicine and Professor of Pediatrics and Molecular Virology and Microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, where he's also the co-director of the Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development. One of Dr. Hotez's books is Preventing the Next Pandemic, Vaccine Diplomacy in a Time of Anti-Science. Dr. Hotez, good to have you back on the program. Thanks for making time for us. Thanks for having me. You got that all in, Roy. I tried. <laughs> What's happening in the United States? Now, we're seeing NFL stadiums overflowing with fans. Hardly anyone seems to be wearing a mask, and distancing isn't taking place. What's going on? You know, the I think the American people, unfortunately, are, well, of course, everyone is sick and tired of the pandemic, but I think what you're seeing is, you know, we're getting a lot of happy talk on the airways about Omicron with claims that it's a benign virus and not serious. And despite the fact that hospitalizations are going up pretty, pretty precipitously, and it's compounded by the fact that we have so many healthcare providers now knocked out of the workforce with breakthrough COVID, not that they're getting very sick, but they're home so they can't take care of the really sick unvaccinated patients. So it's a pretty catastrophic situation where we've got, we're going to hit 2,000 deaths probably tomorrow, and we're going to be that way at 2,000 deaths a day, at least for a while. So it's it's business as usual, unfortunately, and and we don't have a big mass culture uh, in many parts of the U.S., especially down here in Texas. Uh, we don't have people buying into vaccines. It's just catastrophic. You have a new global vaccine, which has been approved for use in India, and I understand you're planning on distributing more than a billion doses globally in the short term. Can you tell us about that? Well, we've been talking the last two years, Roy, in addition to talking to the country and the U.S. and, and Canada, I've been uh, co-heading a lab that develops vaccines for poverty-related neglected diseases, including a low-cost COVID-19 vaccine. We've been working on coronavirus vaccines for the last decade for SARS and MERS, and we've always used the approach that with our vaccines, we have to make them at low cost and simple and easy to administer in resource-poor settings. So we've developed a recombinant protein vaccine, 
We've licensed it with no patents, no strings attached to four countries, to India, Indonesia, Bangladesh, and Botswana. India is the furthest along, and the vaccine producer there is known as Biological E, and their vaccine is called Corbivax, and we helped in the co-development and sent them the production cell bank, and and it looks great, and now they have 150 million doses and now producing 100 million doses a month. So hopefully it'll fill that horrible, horrible global equity gap. Yeah, congratulations on doing that. That's going to mean a great deal to these to these countries. Now, let me go back to the United States for a moment. You have no shortage of vaccines available. What's the uptake like? What percentage of Americans are are accepting the vaccines and accepting the boosters? Uh, it's not good, Roy. It's about sixty uh, percent of the country is quote fully vaccinated, but you have to be careful because our Centers for Disease Control, for reasons I don't understand still calls fully vaccinated two doses, and even though that's not great against Omicron at all. So 60% is two doses. Only about a quarter of the country has three, all three doses. So that's one of the reasons why we're seeing the screaming level of uh, transmission going up. Uh, you also tweeted, and we'll move just ahead a little bit here, uh, you're, you've tweeted about long COVID, and you have concerns about how prevalent this condition may become yeah i mean you know when we've the problem is with long covid is the case definitions are not consistent so depending on how you define long covid we may be talking 10 percent of cases or 50 percent of cases and, and and especially in kids you know there are some studies from the great ormond street hospital in london suggesting one in seven so about 14 uh, percent and the part that I'm most concerned about is the neurologic deterioration studies coming out of Oxford University showing gray matter brain degeneration and cognitive decline. And I think that's one of the big unknowns is what are the long-term consequences of COVID-19. And for kids, we even have data now suggesting it, it sets them up to make them more susceptible to diabetes, presumably because of virus infection in the pancreas and the host response to that. So, you know, this this pandemic, even once it's over, and we're still a long way off from it being over, will haunt us for many years, I'm afraid. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 